Hey, young ladies, it's Kristen. I am currently taking my very first vacation in more than two years, not to brag, but I'm not leaving y'all high and dry. It is the last week of Pride Month, and to celebrate, I thought I would bring y'all this slice of LGBTQ history from the Unladies Room Patreon. Would you believe that this is what it sounded like when Christine Jorgensen, who was often called the first transgender celebrity, arrived back from Denmark, her plane touched down following a successful gender-affirming surgery? Listen to this. Have you been offered a movie contract? Yes, but I haven't accepted it. Do you uh, do you have any plans regarding the theater? No, I don't think so. And Christine! Uh, are you going to go on with your photography? I hope so, yes. I see. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. The year was 1952. The climate in the U.S. was, I mean, we're heading into Leave it to Beaver territory, which, oh man, that's probably way too old of a reference that today sounds like some weird, like, porn euphemism? I don't know. So after World War II, the Lavender Scare is excising hundreds of LGBTQ federal government workers. Homophobia is raging. Meanwhile, there is this so-called masculinity crisis happening where uh, there was this fear that moms were being too soft on their boys. They weren't raising strong American men who could defend this country. And the mother blame at the time was so intense that it was referred to as momism. Okay, uh, longtime listeners will have heard about this before, but there was just this whole freak out over men being men, reclaiming their place at home, and also women, if you got this job during the war, we're going to need to fucking fire you and send you back home. Meanwhile, white anxiety is like, oh, just like starting to boil over. We are uh, in 1954. We get Brown v. Board of Education and school desegregation. In the South, the civil rights movement is starting to coalesce and organize. And it is kind of stunning And for reasons we'll get into, not terribly surprising that it it wasn't all hate for Christine Jorgensen, someone I have wanted to learn more about for a long time, since in any history of transgender identity in the U.S. or even just globally, Christine's name is going to come up because of their visibility. The most talked about girl in the world, that was what she was called in some newspapers. Some people described her as the most famous woman in the world. And someone who has researched a lot about Christine Jorgensen is Joanne Meyerowitz. I found her article in the OAH Magazine of History for March 2006, Transforming Sex 
Christine Jorgensen in the post-war U.S. And I have to share this very on-the-unladylike nose quote from the article. Joanne wrote, With her ladylike demeanor, she reinforced conventional notions of femininity, heterosexual respectability, but as an out trans woman, she also broke all the rules. I read that and I said to myself, Joanne, someone who broke the ladylike rules while also maintaining them? Tell me more. Tell me more. Well, I'll tell you more. Christine Jorgensen was born in 1926, which doesn't really matter all that much, but (laughs) she was born in 1926. And in her autobiography, she writes about the... uh, understandable mental health challenges that she had as a child, feeling very lonely and alienated. And in 1945, she's at the library, okay, and she stumbles across this book, The Male Hormone. And The Male Hormone was essentially all about testosterone and how it could make you a manlier man. And Christine thought to herself, huh, okay, well, if that's what testosterone could do, then maybe there's something I need to learn more about in terms of estrogen. So Christine starts looking for endocrinologists. And finally, in 1950, she leaves the U.S., for Copenhagen, where she finds an endocrinologist, Dr. Christian Hamburger. Dr. Hamburger. Perfect. Christine Jorgensen then undergoes in Copenhagen two years of estrogen therapy, psychiatric evaluations, and ultimately gender-affirming surgery. And it's also in Copenhagen where Christine later says that she socially transitioned. And I believe that Dr. Hamburger oversaw Christine's medical care free of charge because this was a time when scientists and scholars who focused on uh, anatomy and sexuality and things like that. Like this is the era of the Kinsey Report. This is when we first have language describing gender starting to emerge in academic circles. So this was a cutting edge kind of thing that an expert like Dr. Hamburger would want to pursue. And I'm not exactly sure how word gets out, who exactly orchestrated the media around it. But in December of 1952, Christine returns to the United States and the press is there. It is an event. There is a famous cover of the New York Daily News full page with, of course, side-by-side photos of Christine pre- and post-transition with giant headline, XGI becomes blonde beauty, operations transform Bronx youth. Christine's story is picked up everywhere. We are talking hundreds of newspaper articles, magazine features in the U.S., internationally. And the way Joanne tells it, at least, the majority of that press was positive. And also surprising is that Jorgensen was able to have the 
sex in her passport, her U.S. passport changed at the U.S. embassy in Copenhagen. And that little note will come up again in a minute. So 1953, she's back in the U.S. She's flooded with media attention. She launches a successful nightclub act. It doesn't seem like she was subject to any kind of violent harassment. It was more the cis-normative questioning and skepticism of, well, is she really a woman? Like, there was always that dubious transphobic suspicion. But listen to this from the L.A. Times. This is from a 1953 feature. Christine Jorgensen is pretty, personable, and pleasant. By any standard, she's courteous and intelligent, too. Over lunch in a suite at the Statler yesterday, this reporter forgot to remember her past maleness and only saw the present femininity and charm. Now, okay, let's uh, set aside the misgendering and tone of, uh, of spectacle. It also resonates with... All of these profiles and features of Christine Jorgensen, where the reporter goes out of their way to describe her physical appearance, of course, and how feminine and ladylike and attractive she is and what she's wearing and how she does her hair and all of her mannerisms. But what's interesting, too, and I'm not sure how all of this was orchestrated, but by the time Christine Jorgensen returned from Denmark to the U.S., she was signed on with William Randolph Hearst's American Weekly, which was a Sunday newspaper supplement with uh, a circulation of 9.5 million. Whew, those were the days for print. Um, but they had already signed her for the exclusive story of her life. So she published, I think it was a five-part serialized kind of mini autobiography. People were clearly enthralled enough with Christine Jorgensen's story that competing newspapers like the disgusting New York Post published stories that were, you know, suspicious of Jorgensen saying, oh, well, there's no way that she could really be a woman. But... Meyerowitz notes, almost all of the press accounts continued to grant Jorgensen her status as a woman, and so it seems did the public. Yo, this is the 1950s. Joanne Meyerowitz partly attributes that to the science of it all. We were in the atomic age. Science was making things possible like never before. And here... Through Christine Jorgensen's sort of story of self that she shared in the American Weekly when she first got back to the United States, it was this happy ending. The scientific and medical care that she was able to receive took her from a place of feeling hopeless and horrible about herself to feeling happy and wanting what any... What any wholesome American girl wants, which is to find a husband and be a homemaker. But as much of a public figure as Jorgensen was at the time, she 
was also having an impact on the clinical side. For the first time, doctors and scientists started to really distinguish between the concept of biological sex as determined by your genitals, hormones, chromosomes, and the old gonads, and also what they first referred to as your psychological sex, which in 1955 was renamed gender. And not long after that, the term gender identity was coined as well. So all of these things are developing in real time. And Jorgensen herself was this very glamorous face of this new scientific age. But as we very well know today, it's one thing for the ivory tower, let's say, and even the court of public opinion to accept one's gender and gender identity and expression. And it is a whole other thing for the law to decide. Even though Christine Jorgensen, remember, was able to have the sex on her U.S. passport changed to female when she and her fiancé, a guy named Howard J. Knox, Applied for a marriage license in 1959, the city clerk said, no, I don't have sufficient proof that you're a woman. Not going to do it. Jorgensen was like, well, this is this is bullshit. We'll try again. But y'all, from what I could find, she never married. And I don't know how long she and Howard Knox stayed together. Uh, apparently... He lost his job as a typist in Washington, D.C. the week that their plans to get married were publicized. So while she was treated <laughs> as a celebrity in a lot of ways in the press, in the day-to-day -day public, it's not like everybody was suddenly cool with it. Everybody was suddenly like, oh, yeah, you know what? Gender is a spectrum. It wasn't until 1968 that a New York judge ruled that you could change your legally recognized name and sex that would then qualify you for marriage licenses to someone of the opposite gender. Because, of course, the whole thing here was that, like, oh, my God, well, uh, listen, we're not sure that this is a, a heterosexual marriage and we can't have anything else but that happening. So, oh, Christine, wow, you are a, a beautiful, a beautiful woman. I'm sorry you cannot marry this man. Christine Jorgensen maintained a public profile for the rest of her life. Have the audiences changed in their, oh, their perception of you? I'm sure that people came out in the first days of your nightclub tours, your college tours, to, oh, yeah. to look at you as almost a sideshow act. Well, possibly, but you know, uh, Tom, people keep using the word curiosity. Well, let's face it, if Einstein wasn't curious, we wouldn't have had the theory of relativity. Uh, the students, I've spoken with over 200,000 students in the last seven or eight years. And I've never felt put on by them, ever, ever, ever. Uh, by today's standards, they, they're not surprised by it. She was an icon of her day, even though her name has largely been lost to history, but even more lost to history are the other trans women 
who were publicly transitioning around the same time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. In 1954... The magazine People Today, not to be confused with People, said next to the recurrent hydrogen bomb headlines, reports of sex changes are becoming the most persistently startling world news. And there was this mid 50s to mid 60s spurt of stories about trans women who had gone abroad to either Europe, but also there were gender-affirming surgeries happening in places like Mexico, Morocco, Japan even. Um, And none of them, though, received the same kind of celebrity as Christine Jorgensen. And Emily Skidmore critiques this. She kind of, she, she, really asked the question of why that was in her 2011 paper, Constructing the, in quotes, Good Transsexual, Christine Jorgensen, Whiteness and Heteronormativity in the Mid-20th Century Press. And Skidmore argues, rightfully, that by centering Christine Jorgensen's story, which, I mean, it was absolutely a milestone, but that the trans histories up to that point focused on her only through a gendered lens. When if you look at the public reception of Christine Jorgensen and and the way that she really had to perform her gender as a public figure said just as much about whiteness and class as well. Trans women, especially Christine Jorgensen, but also other white trans women like Christine McLeod, who came out during the same time, the way that they were often featured in the press, they were almost always photographed in very domestic settings. Um, They focused on their kitchen skills, their homemaking skills, their physical beauty, their charm, all of these things that were, you know, part and parcel of this idealized white womanhood. There was also no room for error. Charlotte McLeod was another person who, like 
Christine Jorgensen served in World War II, but very briefly wasn't really into the army, left uh, when they returned to the U.S. after their gender affirming surgery. They had an altercation with a reporter at the tarmac, and you got headlines like this from the New York Daily News. The new Charles wasn't ladylike. I mean, so it's it's one of two things. It's either misgendering you because you are not performing womanhood well enough, or it's that, like, tokenizing of like oh my god you are like you're like so pretty like can you believe what uh, which is invalidating and dehumanizing in and of itself um, but one thing that skidmore does is also look into the press coverage of trans women of color who were in the press as well now notably black trans women were really only covered In the black press, someone that Emily Skidmore spotlights is Delissa Newton, who was featured in 1966 on the cover of Sepia magazine. And Skidmore writes that the black press, starting in the 50s, was covering trans issues in a much different way than the white mainstream press. And that different way was by also including the interrogation of race along with gender. So in this serialized kind of autobiography by Delissa Newton in Sepia Magazine, she wrote, Many doctors showed me little sympathy and understanding. You people are too emotional for such an ordeal, one doctor told me. And Skidmore also emphasizes that in the context of white supremacist stereotyping of Black men and black male sexuality, like it was in direct conflict, of course, to the idealized white womanhood, the white lady up on her pedestal who must be protected from whom? From black men, from black masculinity. Skidmore writes, the visual dissonance produced by black men inhabiting the normative scripts of femininity, scripts created in reference to whiteness, hold the potential to highlight the performativity of race and gender. Thus, in order to naturalize white womanhood as the universal ideal and thereby maintain the legitimacy of strict racial boundaries, it was vital that the mainstream press either ignore cases such as Delissa Newton or treat such individuals as objects of ridicule for attempting to present themselves as real women. That was a really long quote. Sorry, I didn't... (laughs) Uh, I try to avoid really chunky quotes like that. And basically what Skidmore is saying is is like, hello, give me intersectionality or give me nothing, you know, that you you can't fully understand the impact of Christine Jorgensen aside from her undeniable celebrity. You can't fully understand her impact and also the tightrope that she had to navigate 
without understanding the role of white womanhood. Another person that Skidmore mentions is Laverne Peterson. She was an AAPI trans woman who came out in 1964, and she received a little bit of press attention. But what's really notable in contrast to both the kind of press construct of Christine Jorgensen, this uh, peak glamorous white lady, and Delissa Newton is how uh, we see the exoticism applied to Asian American women. Laverne Peterson was described in Honolulu Sunday Star Bulletin and Advertiser newspaper. God, newspapers had really long names. She was described as a, quote, sexual enigma. And Skidmore notes that in contrast to the white supremacist perception of black masculinity as like hyper, hyper masculine, the white supremacist perception of Asian men was feminized in that way. So in the coverage of an AAPI trans woman... She's still very exoticized. She's not photographed at home. She's photographed in a tank top on what looks like she's like on a beach hugging a palm tree. She has very long, very long, straight, dark hair. And again, she is described not so much as a real woman, but a sexual enigma. But what all of these women or most of them have in common is that their narrative was also necessarily heterosexual, that Christine Jorgensen in particular, and she she may have become more nuanced on this later in life, but in her early serialized autobiography, she describes how how distasteful and revolting it was to her that she could potentially be gay because she was attracted to men. And of course, yes, I know that internalized homophobia is absolutely a thing. Um, but all of these women express like, okay, well, why, why did you go through with this? Really, the only acceptable answer was because they wanted a husband eventually. They were not gay. They did not want to be identified as gay. And they wanted a husband and a family. A lot of them were like, I don't, you know, I, I just want to, I just want to be happy and, and live a normal life. But, you know, in, in the mid 1950s, the recipe for living as a whole woman, of course, <laughs> was to find a husband and settle down. Oh, yeah. Did I mention um, trans men? Yes, they absolutely existed during this time and got next to zero press attention. But reading about Christine Jorgensen in particular, but really all of these women and the way that they were navigating their identities and lives in this time, 
also makes you wonder, of course, like, well, when does the transphobic tide start to turn more aggressively? I'm certainly not to say that these trans women's lives were easy, breezy, beautiful cover girl, but it's really not until a bit later in the 80s that we start to see the emergence of what is at full fester, full full pox upon our house today when you get an unlikely convergence between self-identified radical feminists, particularly a mega turf named Janice Raymond, along with conservative Catholics and the Reagan administration. But that, dearest friends and patrons, is for another episode. I've had enough. Okay, and ladies, that was the bonus episode. There won't be any episode coming out on the feed next week, just taking a full-on podcast holiday. But come on back. July 11th, brand new Unladylike episodes starting, and I am so excited for the episodes coming y'all's way. In the meantime, there is plenty to listen to over in the Unladies room. Patreon.com slash Unladylike Media is where you can go, enjoy, support. $5 a month or more is all that it costs to help an independent feminist podcast survive. You can also follow Unladylike on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Unladylike Media. Until week after next. Hello, and here and now is the first and only recorded interview with Christine Jorgensen. Uh, Miss Jorgensen, or may I call you Christine? Please do, Mr. Russell. Are you a woman? That's a very good question. We seem to assume that every person is either a man or a woman. But we don't take into account this true scientific value that each person is actually both in varying degrees. 